you're listening to Seeking Change, the podcast where industry collaborates on eco-efficient minerals and made possible by the generosity of our sponsors and volunteers. In today's episode, we are joined by Seek International Director Philip Van Goethe, based in Brisbane, Australia, and Vancouver-based Seek Advocate and Principal Consultant at Resourceful Paths, Laurie Remeyer as we discuss an exciting new project led by Seek International, the Global Water Initiative. Well, once again, Laurie, I guess we're talking water, <laughs> one of our favourite topics, I know. And in this this context, we, we've been having a few conversations, I guess, um, around this, this topic for Seek in the last few months, but um, it's always a pleasure to talk uh, to talk to you about it. Um, absolutely, Phil. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. How have you been keeping? Um, pretty good? Very, very busy. Yeah. Um, we're, we're working on various aspects of how to make uh, mining more sustainable, both uh, from a water perspective and a greenhouse gas uh, perspective. And I think that's a, it's a neat topic as we've been talking about how water and greenhouse gas emission reductions are somewhat complementary. Uh, you know, it's an area we can compare and contrast and goals that are important for the industry and somewhat tied uh, as we think about climate change, as we think about resilience of mining operations and so forth. So, um, yep, plenty plenty going on in that space. Absolutely, me too. And uh, of course, a little bit of history around where we came from in SEEK was indeed those energy curves and 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 yep. by energy, that's relationship to, to carbon. A bit of a flagship uh, initiative of SEEK uh, spanning back some 10 years, I guess. And um, we asked ourselves that pretty important question a few years ago about uh, could we do something similar uh, to the energy curves uh, for water? And uh, it was a great question to ask, I think. And we obviously went through some some workshops and so on to try and get to where we are today. Those energy curves were uh, were really a, a pretty good pretty good outcome for the industry and uh, a lot of kudos to the people who were involved in that somewhat before my time although I got interested quite a lot um, and facilitated some of those workshop sessions around those energy curves so moving it through to water I guess there's been there's been a uh, somewhat of an epiphany perhaps where we we thought well we started out calling it curves but really curves are not necessarily the uh, uh, how it's going to go with water there's there's too much context uh, to talk about it in terms of a single dimension like like we did with the, with the energy curves. So uh, I think that's how you see it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. Um, and uh, I want to sort of just recap because SEEK uh, coordinated a workshop on water in Vancouver after the SAG conference in 2019. So I, I joined that. Uh, there was some collaboration with SEEK uh, and and SIMIC uh, in, in, in Canada here because I think there's a recognition that water is a very much a global issue that we're trying to collaborate on and so forth. And it was good to be part of that. That was that was really a good lead in. But certainly um, I agree that there are some challenges relating to water, partly because uh, it is very context specific. We've got to think about the, the watershed, the geography and so forth. We've got to think about the battery limits 
of the particular operations that we're thinking about. And some of those may be split between particular sites. So we have uh, situations, for example, where a water may be transferred from uh, external areas into a mine site or off a mine site. Sometimes we're doing water infrastructure to support communities. Sometimes we're sending products in a pipeline which carry a lot of water to another site. Things like that can be a bit <coughs> ambiguous. Um, and uh, cli cli also, climate, climatic conditions as well, I think. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and, and certainly context, that's yeah. that's that's uh, that's very important in terms of, for example, uh, if you're in a wet climate and you've got a lot of water from precipitation, etc. We need to think about how that affects both the water balance in terms of quantity, as well as how the interaction of water, particularly with mine waste, might affect quality, both for an environmental perspective as well as how it might influence the water quality used in processing, which can then link to metallurgical factors and so forth. So it's it's quite a complex area. It's it's more complex, we feel, than energy, as we've talked about from time to time mm. in the past, because I think energy is is more really around um, you know, kilowatt hours and gigajoules and and then the emissions factors that go with that. That's that's fairly straightforward. But with water, particularly because quantity and quality matter so much, um, it can become quite quite a complex uh, situation. There could be a lot of recycle loops which you know, perhaps can be interpreted in different ways depending on how you set up a water balance, how you define certain terms. And that's something as we've been going through this project, uh, Phil, we've talked about a bit is um, how are some of the guidelines interpreted? How do people quote things like a recycle rate? When uh, you look at um, data that might be in the public domain in, in company sustainability reports, it's not always clear how people have interpreted things. And I think sometimes companies are both uh, a little bit, uh, shall we say, optimistic about how they report and other times a little conservative. You know, we see some sites, I remember looking at data from a site in South Australia where they quoted a relatively low recycle rate. And I think that was partly just how they define it because they're actually doing a lot of water recycling, but it depends how it's um, how it's quoted. So these are the types of issues that I think, you know, they're really good to explore and seek and maybe help get a bit more consistency to understand uh, some of the underlying interpretation of water data to, to really think about how we can do better in the industry. Exactly. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you about some gaps in a moment, but um, <clears throat> SEEK has obviously got that that second C in its name, which which stands for comminution, uh, the effect that comminution has on on particle size, and of course, and uh, the need to do it, and uh, the emerging technologies, these all play into what we've been talking about. And seek seek in, in, in itself is generally a place to come and to, to to discuss, to examine what other people are doing. But but we felt that bringing bringing this into a more formalised initiative, as we're calling it, the Global Water Initiative. Is a way to go forward, um, and I, I guess hence why you and I have been talking uh, so much over the last few months. So I want I, I wanted to sort of ask about what we feel about gaps. You've already alluded to a couple of things: definitional uncertainty, perhaps, is is one thing, yes. and and the ability to judge one one site against another or one company against another is um, something I think that analysts, both um, financial and technical analysts, would want to know, um, you know, uh, if it's their own site, you know, how am I doing against our peers or uh, somebody looking for an investment might want to, to understand the risks, water risks, as well as everything else, uh, but water risks in particular. And where can they go to, to do that? Can, do they have to, um, can they go to some central place where they might be able to judge things or do they have to do the do the work themselves that's that's really 
how this conversation really got going, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one key issue, one key gap that we've seen and talked about is around how data are aggregated. And you know, you see quite a lot of good information these days in sustainability reports. Some of it is uh, quite disaggregated, so you can see it by particular mine sites, particularly where you've got companies that have only one operating asset, for example. It's pretty straightforward. Oh, oh, yeah, they that's straightforward, their, of course. Their water data, and it's all, all related to their main operating site. Um, th there's been some good work done, for example, by Newmont. I, I know we mm -hmm. looked at some data um, that was shared and discussed with some, some of the, uh, with one of the board members of SEEK, just pointing out how good the, the Newmont data is recently in terms of it being disaggregated by site. But for many companies, data are aggregated. And if you've got a, a large mining company with, you know, various divisions, they might have an iron ore division and a copper division and a coal division and so forth. If they just talk about overall water use from all those operations across different commodities, all parts of the world, it really becomes somewhat meaningless. Um, I mean, I think, sure, you can you can quote how much water you're using overall, but if you're trying to understand how well you're doing, you really need disaggregated data, data that's really based around particular sites and with some geographical context and some context around the types of mining operations and flow sheets and so forth. And that's obviously a gap. Um, certainly, it's a gap in the public domain. And I think if we're going to do better as an industry, if investors are going to help to drive change, if professionals are going to be able to improve practices, et cetera, I think they really need to see that picture about how different types of mining operations and different types of flow sheets are working in different parts of the world and how we can do better through uh, use of uh, appropriate technology and different methods and so forth, um, as well as thinking about, for example, the types of source water, because one, one aspect that has come up is can we use, for example, lower quality waters that have less impact on the immediate environment, for example, seawater processing, for example. And th there are certainly gaps in terms of how clearly those type of things are, are presented. There's some improvements, there's some guidelines that are in place, like, for example, from ICMM, a very good guideline. But mm -hmm. until companies are putting that uh, data in the public domain in ways that we really can understand, you know, the, the the types of water, the sources and so forth, it's pretty difficult to really understand how well industry is doing. And I think to some extent, not all of the good news and all the good work that's happening in industry is that well explained. And, and I think that will be one of the benefits of this project is that um, we'll be able to shine the light uh, some more on, on some of the good things that are happening. Perhaps we'll also shine a bit more light on some of the, the areas for improvement as well, but um, but that's all part of well, yeah. uh, the, the, the natural course of this sort of project. I wanted to pick up on one thing you said there, which was uh, it, it has a context-specific thing as well. I'm just looking at a number here, which which is just just happens to be 0.61 cubic metres of water used per tonne of ore milled. I, I mean, Okay, so cool. That that's a, that's a metric that that people can can talk about, and whether that's good or bad can can be discussed and debated. But the context that 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 is falling within is well, well, is that is that a place that's arid and and has a, a great shortage of water, or is that in a is that in a place where there's plenty of water, and in fact we're trying to evaporate as much as possible because the use of such 0.61 cubic meters each tonne of ore has got a different meaning for those two different places. And, and so that's why it's very difficult to treat it, treat every mine all in one one place. And the aggregation 
that you see in in corporates means that they have an average for their operations. Well, unless you know, you know, some are uh, lots of water, some got uh, water shortages. It, it the word meaningless is probably probably accurate. That's not to say that uh, non-technical people looking at a company's performance around water and wanting to see a, a reduction in the water use um, just because water is scarce in general in most places. That That's useful, I guess, from uh, outward facing, but inward facing in, in corporations, how do you judge how well you're doing without disaggregation? Um, maybe, uh, maybe I can come back to what we're going to call archetypes. Uh, I will explain that in a moment, but, but I did want to just uh, move the conversation a little bit here. We've talked about a project uh, and I've called it an initiative. So I guess the initiative is broken into, into smaller stages, which you might be able to call projects. Um, and at the moment we're talking about stage one, we've done what other people might call uh, stage zero. So we've done a little bit of work around um, how, to, how to form an, an initiative or a project. And we've fallen on a two-stage process where initially we're looking to use um, academic researchers in this case to help create a framework and understand what a stage two might look like. So stage one will have a number of things in it. In general, uh, we could say uh, there's development of these archetypes, which we're going to talk about in a moment, working out some metrics. So I've just quoted one metric, but there's a whole bunch of them to do with per tonne of this and per tonne of that and uh, per unit of EBITDA and so on. Uh, which ones are actually likely to be interesting to everybody. We're going to have to create a, a database. And how would we uh, how would we put uh, that database in, into the public? And I should say that our objective here is to have open access, free to access a database for analysts to come and find, find such information, which is going to be largely, if not entirely, based on publicly disclosed information anyway. So that's a stage one, if you like, and that, that's where we're going to be going uh, and, and getting started and, and moving through that stage one during 2023. That's the, uh, that's the timeline and the expectation. So perhaps we could tell the listeners what we mean by archetypes, perhaps. We sort of hinted yeah, at it already, but why don't you do that? Yeah, sure, Phil. Um, look, when we were starting and we've been talking for a few months here around how do we get a good sense of how to compare particular operations to one another? How do we understand what is good practice? What does good look like when it comes to water and mining? And uh, we thought of this concept of archetypes because there is um, you know, a particular configuration of a mine. We can think about things like a mining method, about a particular commodity and the associated flow sheets that are compatible with different types of ore. Uh, we can think in the, in the sites that need tailings, for example, uh, there is a very strong connection between the processing, the, I guess, the energy requirements for grinding, tailings management and water, those things are all quite tightly tied. Um, so for a lot of these types of processes, particularly say, for example, how we recover the bulk of copper in the world using grinding and flotation of sulphide ores and the tailings management and tailings dewatering and, and so forth, those things really form the basis of some archetypes in conjunction also with geographical aspects. So we've talked a bit about, you mentioned arid regions where you know water scarcity, scarcity is a big issue where we have to really think carefully about our water withdrawals so that we don't impact on other communities and stakeholders on the environment. 
Uh, we can think about wet climates where there is excess water. We've got to minimise contact waters and so forth with mine waste to avoid um, environmental problems. Uh, we can have sites where there is variable water, where it's dry some, sometimes when you have major floods. And so that you know that influences, for example, how uh, a mine might need to think about you know, things like diversion structures or catchment basins and 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 and, uh, and storage uh, reservoirs, for example, that can handle both floods and and store enough water in dry seasons. All of those sort of aspects. So you know there is various dimensions that we can various combinations we can think of that that define what would be a a typical mine site and how what might we compare that with others. So if we think of one very classic archetype that we think about in in water scarce regions, arid regions, say in outback Australia or in uh, northern Chile, where you know access to to clean you know water is is really at a premium, where there are high costs to bring that water in, where you have to think perhaps about things like desalination, et cetera, comes at huge costs. These are typically um, open pit mines, so moving large quantities of waste rock and and ore at low grades to uh, process them by grinding and flotation to make a copper concentrate, which is a very small fraction of the actual ore, uh, and mostly producing large tailing streams, which then have to be dewatered. Um, so we can think of that. And, and if we think about, say, that type of configuration, we think of best practice, that best practice that incorporates things like, for example, the thickening of tailings, the efficient sort of uh, deposition for reclaim of water to minimise seepage, minimise evaporation. Um, you know, there are sites in Chile that will get down to around, say, 0.4 metres cubed per tonne of ore milled, um, and that's very, very good practice. Now, you can go better than that, but you have to invest significantly in things like, for example, tailings filtration, the stacking of filtered tailings, where you can then recover and recycle more water and reduce those losses into the tailing stream and to evaporation and so forth. But that, of course, requires a lot of capital that may not be uh, viable at this stage with our current uh, size of machines and the, and the and the costs of tailings dewatering, for example. But it is, I think, a a signal or a metric or a, a pathway that we could explore to see how to do better in certain regions. If the cost of water is high enough, if it costs incredible amounts of money to either get water to those sites or if if it will in fact uh, restrict or constrain production, well then I think companies absolutely need to think about things like filtering of their tailings to increase water uh, recovery and recycling. Um, but that, that, for example, is an archetype. There are other archetypes, like I know you've uh, done some work in the Northern Territory, uh, sites that have a lot of excess water. I remember seeing pictures on your, your screensaver, uh, your background with yeah. big water ponds and evaporation. So that would be a different sort of archetype, but really looking at, at, at the combination of commodities, uh, mining methods, flow sheets, tailings configuration overprinted by geography and picking enough of those in the early stage of the project to come up with some meaningful paths forward about how to improve uh, water management, how to look at the metrics and say what does good look like versus where could there be some improvements. Right, a, 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 place, a place for analysts to go, technical or commercial analysts to go to say, uh, um, you know, what what is best practice, what what's emerging because uh, because not all best practice has emerged yet um, and I'm you know the recent announcements by Anglo-American around their, their El Soldado hydraulic dry stack technology seems to be very impressive to me uh, and that such such a thing would sit in in the uh, the database that we've got in mind so that people could very quickly uh, understand that that in that water scarce environment um, and in that water 
hungry environment. In other words, there's there's other uses for that water. There's new alternatives to the uh, the dry stack tailings filtration uh, method, which you've mentioned. So each archetype by archetype, there would be different drivers um, and different initiatives from industry for creating new ideas, such as such as the one of Anglo-American. Those pressures are different in different archetypes, and you're quite right. The Northern Territory, uh, you mentioned that, uh, that I worked on some years ago now, uh, trying to maximise evaporation and, and, and have as much water area exposed to uh, to, to cope with the, the huge amount of rain in those tropical regions, uh, very much different to the one mentioned for Chile. And indeed, in, in Canada, again, uh, plenty of water, um, but very pristine environments that uh, that our operations work in and therefore quality discharges and all those sorts of things, watersheds, everything. So archetype by archetype. And, and we can imagine probably three, four, five, six different archetypes to uh, to structure this around. But again, uh, we don't know until we, we get into the project proper and figure out a way to, um, uh, to reassemble this uh, so that it's the most useful for the industry to come and come and take a look. So um, we've uh, we've asked ourselves, and we've been asking industry people, is this is this right for Seek? And I think we've concluded that it is. But I, but I think it's worth just exploring that just for a moment. Comminution plays a big part in in the water performance. Obviously, if you can uh, have a coarser grind, or you can em- employ different technologies such as coarse particle flotation and so on, the the effect that it has on the water balance is actually quite profound in certain ways, and uh, so the connection to seek from a uh, a technical point of view, or at least a, a topical point of view, is relatively clear to me. But there are other things that you and I have discussed before, so I might let you have uh, have a say there. What's what's why seek? Yeah, thanks, Phil, and and certainly that connection with energy, I think, is quite important on a few fronts. I think you've mm. talked about coarser processing, uh, for example, uh, coarsening brine and then employing coarse particle flotation is one way. And I think the connection there is that um, that potentially creates some tailing streams that are much more easily dewatered, where we can cheaply recover a greater quantity of water for recycling the, into the plant. And that should result in improved metrics. So when we talked about that, for example, mm. 0.61 or 0.4 metres cubed per tonne of ore, if you make a change from a conventional flotation, grinding flotation circuit, to one that does cause particle flotation, well, you've got a potential to you know, meaningfully drop that water use per tonne of ore milled. Also, mm. things like pre-concentration, for example, if you employ uh, sorting or um, dense medium separation to avoid the need to grind a significant portion of your ore, then you create uh, waste fractions that are very easily drained, where we can basically not be you know, tying up water into those, uh, those waste products from processing and improve our performance. Uh, another aspect and link to energy is really there's a nexus. We talk really about the tailings and water connection and, and so forth and how that links to the, the quantity of water that's needed and, uh, and recognising that in some parts of the world there is enormous energy needed for water treatment, desalination, for example, but more importantly, conveyance. And in Chile, for example, where you're now uh, seeing a lot of mining companies having desalination plants at the coast and then pumping desalinated uh, water, you know, 4,000 metres or so up the mountains to the mine sites, that requires a huge amount of energy. And so if we can combine um, the supply of water from the sea 
with more efficient practice and reduce the amount of water that's needed, then you can sort of start to see a configuration that considers both energy and 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 water consumption and water quality and so forth to get what is um, you know a a reasonable balance of money and cost and environmental impact and so forth and and make those operations more sustainable. So I, I really like that connection between energy and water and and how SEEP brings that together. Um, and also, I like that you know we are a collaborative organisation. We're a, a group of professionals that cares about environmental and social issues. Uh, we're looking for improvement. I think um, you know certainly collaborating with people like yourself and Janine Hertzik, uh, the uh, executive director and president of Seek. You know, I, I feel we we really have some common bond there about how to help industry do better. And, and I think um, in that respect, uh, and our ability to collaborate with researchers, for example, our promotion of, of good quality research in the minerals industry, uh, I feel there's some really good building blocks there and why this, this project is a good fit with C. Well, indeed, it fits the mission, yeah, this, this stated, the stated mission, which has been revamped recently, I, I, should, I should add, you know, I'll even read it to you, Lorik. I'm sure you know this off by heart. <laughs> To accelerate the adoption of eco-efficient minerals and metals production practices, it's a terrific commission and took, took a little bit of getting to, to have that. And it's supported by a vision and the, uh, the uh, some objectives. It's There's little doubt that it falls into, um, into our remit. But I would add that, uh, you know, we're a not-for-profit, uh, which means that uh, we rely on, uh, on company sponsorships. And, and we've got a terrific bunch of those uh, right now. And thanks to all of those sponsors who have uh, renewed recently. And we are seeking sponsorship of this Global Water Initiative, obviously, um, in, in the coming weeks. And uh, we just encourage any listeners that uh, think this is a, uh, an interesting topic to get in touch. We can, uh, we can go through, uh, through it a little bit more detail than we've got time for today. And yeah, it buys you, it buys you see the table, if you like. I think that water... Uh, it's water's turn. Uh, carbon emissions. Uh, there's an awful lot of uh, momentum around that in in carbon reductions uh, and commitments to to net zero and so on and so on. But I think water is equally pressing now, particularly in uh, in in well in both quality and 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 the quantity issues of of different mine sites and, and the competition for water with other industries and indeed of course community. It's certainly uh, high on most uh, mining companies' radar, and uh, we'd love them to be a part of, of what we're doing here. Uh, as I said before, initially stage one, so a, uh, building the case to to complete the uh, to complete the initiative uh, through stage one uh, during 2023. And I'm sure Laurie, you'll, you'll want to uh, continue your your association with that project. What have you got? Uh, what have you got in that that respect? Well, absolutely. I'm very uh, eager to maintain my participation in this because I think this is a real opportunity for industry to understand how to do better, mm -hmm. both in terms of um, reducing uh, the the stress that it puts on water resources in communities uh, to reduce the the risks of environmental damage caused by, you know, legacy types of practices, particularly around how water interacts with mine waste. Um, I think this connection between water and energy is is really exciting and, and an interesting area for improvement. But more importantly, I think this is an opportunity where we can help particularly younger professionals and, and some older professionals that perhaps have not been uh, focused as much on sustainability type of issues. You know, So I think mm -hmm. when you think about 
topics like water, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, often they're quite closely tied with the decisions that we make in terms of flow sheet design, operating practice and so forth. Uh, there are clear connections between economic drivers and sustainability drivers. And I think helping professionals understand that, helping them understand how they can be parts of solutions if they're designing new mines and so forth. I really see this project as a vehicle to help uh, really uh, educate and do some knowledge transfer with younger professionals, you know, from uh, high quality researchers from different countries around the world. I think we've got some great uh, potential research collaborators identified in, in a few different countries now. And, and I think that kind of interaction that uh, professionals from sponsored companies could have is is really of value. And I think something that really is, is well connected with the way that SEEK and its advocates and its volunteers and its um, its board members think. And so um, certainly it's something I want to be involved with and I'm very excited about. Yeah, and I guess uh, we should mention the the institutions that we've uh, been uh, collaborating with initially, um, both the Sustainable Minerals Institute at the University of Queensland, close to my home, of course, and uh, most specifically uh, two, two parts of that organisation, SWIMI, the Centre for uh, Water and Mining, and the uh, what they call ICE Chile in Santiago. Uh, a shout out to the members of those teams, uh, but also in your neck of the woods, Laurie, the University of British Columbia. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, uh, Dr. Nadia Kuntz uh, and I have have been collaborating now actually for a number of years, and she's mm -hmm. very interested in this. Uh, she has connections to Australia. She she studied in in Brisbane uh, some years ago, and and I think very much aligned with this kind of project and and I really see uh, a good opportunity for collaboration across those institutions and excited that we've got at least three continents uh, represented uh, so far. We do, we um, do. And, uh, and a real opportunity, I think, to make this a global initiative. Yep. Oh, we shan't mention names, but of course we do have some mining companies uh, really quite keen to help us too, but we uh, we definitely are in the market for um, uh, a couple more. So uh, those listeners who uh, might be interested, please get in touch. I think uh, that's probably about it, uh, Laurie. I, I'm very happy to have a chat on this topic at any time. So, of course, we uh, we regularly do. I guess we uh, we can say thanks to to Jill behind the scenes um, organising this podcast, uh, as well as to Janine and all uh, all the other Seek uh, contributors. And thanks to listeners for at least listening to us. And thanks to you, Laurie. I appreciate it. Absolutely, it's always good to talk to you about these type of topics, Phil. Okay, lovely. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you found value and ideas from this episode. Your voice and advocacy can help us to expand conversations in eco-efficient mineral processing. So if you have enjoyed the podcast, please give us a positive rating or even write a quick review on Google or Apple iTunes. If you'd like to stay informed and involved, you can tap into free resources at our website, seekthefuture.org. That's C-E-E-C-thefuture.org. You can also subscribe to our regular Seek News, which features information on new podcasts, videos, and events. And to join our expanding group of advocates and sponsors, just email comms at seekthefuture.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at seekthefuture.org. Thank you, and we hope you'll join us for the next Seeking Change podcast.